All right. Uh, we are going to be in First Peter, back in First Peter this morning in chapter 2. So, uh, so far in our study, uh, Peter's been trying to encourage these Christians um, by reminding them that, that even though they're exiles and, and outsiders and, and maybe feeling like they don't belong in the world right now, that they're chosen and precious by God and, and that they have this amazing inheritance waiting for them so that they have every reason to be filled with hope. But a lot of what he's been telling them has been talking about kind of this future hope, which is something we need. We need to focus on our future hope, but we also need hope for today. And that's what he's going to be talking to them about, that that what God is doing in their lives right now matters, and that he has them right where he wants them, and that they belong where he has them. And we need to know that sometimes as Christians. Knowing that you still belong matters. How important is it for you to, to, to be a part of something, to know that you are a part, that you belong, that, that you're kind of have a purpose, that you're known and, and validated and, and accepted. For most of us, this is very important. You remember the, the opening song to the, the TV show Cheers in the 80s? Right? You want to go where everybody knows your name. That, that's true of us. Uh, we want people to yell out, Norm, when we walk into a room. <laughs> Unless, you know, your name's Dean, then it's just awkward. But... But you get the idea. Knowing that you have an identity with with something is significant, something we all need. Well, in 1977, for me, uh, it was the KISS Army. Uh, I was 10 years old, and I thought KISS was the coolest thing that had ever happened in the world. If you're not familiar with KISS, probably a blessing. Uh, but they were a rock band who wore white face paint and these outrageous costumes. They would blow fire on stage. And I, they looked like they'd been transported from the future. And I was awestruck. And there was this, this uh, fan club you could join called the Kiss Army. And they would advertise it in magazines because that's how you got information out back then. And, and the, the bummer, though, was that it cost five bucks. And for a 10-year-old in 1977, that was a chunk of change. But I, I, I had to have it because it tells you know, the membership. I had to look it up because I couldn't remember, but I found it online, which was so funny. But it told you the stuff that it came with. It said that it came with a certificate and then in parentheses it said suitable for framing, which is important. I know, what, kind of, what kind of certificate are we talking about here? Is it suitable for framing? Okay. It came with a bio of each member of the group, a quarterly newsletter, an iron-on patch, and a membership card. So I'm slightly embarrassed to say that you are in the presence right now of a member of the KISS Army because it was a lifetime membership. <laughs> now, I know some of you are going, I, I know who that band is and what they're like. I want to make sure I'm clear. I am not endorsing that band or their music. I don't like them anymore. In fact, before I got here this morning, I took the membership card out of my wallet. <laughs> I threw it away. So... I want to make sure you all know that I, I drew that line. I'm not going back. I don't really still have it. The point is this. My 10-year-old mind, I belonged to something that was monumentally important, and it meant everything to me. We all need this. this we need to belong. Um, we need to be known. It creates this sense of purpose and value and ultimately our identity. And Peter is writing to a group of people who have been dispersed, because of their faith, and now they, they find themselves as these exiles who don't really fit in. Anything that they may have found their identity in before, 
has, has largely disappeared. And that can be extremely unsettling, to say the least. There's, there's a better than good chance right now that some of you may be feeling that way, especially in light of many of the things that are happening in our country right now. A lot of what we may have found our identity in and security in is beginning to vanish or change significantly. And the truth is that for a long time in our country, Christianity was, was kind of perceived to be the majority. That was the central view or the central. If you were part of that, you were part of the majority. It was respected. It was a desired thing to be a part of and to be aligned with. But what we've seen over, over the years is that, and we talked about this in Table Talk, is that we've, we've moved from the center of everything out to the, to the fringes. And other things have become maybe more significant or more important. And that, that's kind of a weird thing to, to watch happen. But we're beginning to see this change. It's been interesting to me to see how many of my non-Christian friends have unfriended me on Facebook this year. And it's not because I, I've done anything obnoxious. And I know some of you are going, yeah, right. But it's true. If you're my friend on Facebook, you can validate this. I am the most boring friend on Facebook that one could have. I don't post anything. When it says, what's on your mind, Brent? I'm thinking to myself, none of your business, Facebook. I don't want to, I don't want to say anything on there ever. I don't comment on people's things. I mean, occasionally I'll give a like. If you're really lucky, I'll give you a heart. That's about it. You know, happy birthday. That's it. I don't do a lot on Facebook because in all honesty, I don't feel like it's a good forum to engage people with. You know, I see Christians doing it sometimes and sometimes it goes okay, but most of the time it kind of doesn't. And it's a really hard forum to, to, you know, do back and forth communication with and really be heard and understood. So I don't think that I did anything deserving of being unfriended or alienated like that, other than the fact that I'm a Christian and, and a pastor. And most people know that. So, so that alone made me like this persona non grata, that unwelcomed person to them. I, they canceled me. <laughs> it's kind of weird. I never thought I'd get canceled. I've been canceled by a couple people. And, and it's, an, it's an odd thing to have happen. So the point is that if we're looking to find our identity and our validation in the world or from the world, we're in big trouble. Because the truth of the matter is that if, if people have a problem with Jesus and people really are beginning to have a problem with Jesus in our country, they're going to have a problem with me and you as well. That's the reality. And that means that for some of us, the fact that we are sojourners and exiles in a land where we're now the minority is beginning to sink in, maybe for the first time. And that can be, that can be discouraging. It can be, I don't know, disillusioning. You know, all of a sudden we went from feeling like we were kind of an important part of something to maybe not kind of insignificant. It's causing many Christians, I think, to have an identity crisis right now. And when this begins to happen, one of the dangers is that it can be easy to convince ourselves that God has forgotten about us or that we don't matter. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I thought about maybe how Peter felt on the night Jesus was arrested. Can you imagine him? You know, as it, well, he, he ran off, but he found out about it later. But can you imagine what he felt like that night? Everything he thought was one way appeared to be something different. It was like the rug got pulled out from under him. Now, it wasn't reality, but he didn't know that. There was a time when he, he thought, what's happened? Everything I was banking on, everything I was thinking was real is all of a sudden up in the air. And I think a lot of us are, are wondering that today. So in our passage today, Peter is going to remind the Christian that we are part of something big. We are part of something solid. 
we are part of something permanent and that we can anchor our identity to this. And we must anchor our identity to it, honestly. So he's also going to remind us in this section that Jesus knows exactly what it feels like to go through the things we've been talking about. So first Peter chapter two, verse four is where I'm going to start. And it says this, as you come to him, speaking of Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Isn't that just a rich passage? (laughs) I mean, I could stop there. I kind of want to, but I'm not going to because there's more to talk about. This was one of those weeks where it was just hard to to do this. I don't know why. Some weeks are that way and some weeks you just feel like you're ready to go. This was not a ready to go week. So here we go. Verse four starts out by reminding us that Jesus was rejected by mankind. God himself came to his own creation and and we wanted nothing to do with him. Like it says in, in John chapter one, he came to you know his own and, and his his own received him not. So Jesus completely understands what it's like to be canceled. That's what we're talking about. He was he knows what it's like to be exiled and ostracized and and to not belong. And yet we're also reminded that even though he was rejected by men, he he was chosen and precious in the sight of God. And the same is true for us if we belong to Christ. You are chosen and precious in the sight of God, which should make the the world's rejection just not that big of a deal if if we fully understand that. Okay, so this passage is full of a bunch of stone metaphors. It's talking about rocks quite a bit in here. So let's talk about that for a minute. Peter says Jesus is a living stone and that believers are living stones. He says that Jesus is a cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So a good place to kind of start to explain this would be in their day, if you were going to construct a building, you would start, um, you would begin by finding the right stone to, to begin with. You have to start out with a good stone or, or the rest of the building's not going to work out. You know how important it is when you buy a house to, to make sure the foundation is correct, right? If, if the house has a bad foundation, you don't want to buy it. That's kind of what we're talking about here. The cornerstone is the foundation of the building and everything rests on it and it determines the integrity of the rest of the structure. So if you have a bad cornerstone, the building will not be structurally sound and may be up, uh, be out of plumb or a, a cat. I think the, uh, the, like the technical term is catawampus is what my dad used to call it. Right? You don't want a catawampus structure. And this is why some people's lives kind of look like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, you know, just not quite right the way 
the way it's, it's coming about. Jesus is the only cornerstone given by God that will ensure success. All other ground, good job. All other ground is sinking sand, exactly. So in verse 6, Peter's going to quote Isaiah 28, which says this, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So 700 years prior to Jesus' coming, God announced that he would be delivering a cornerstone to Jerusalem. This, this would be the perfect cornerstone for them to build upon. And the question then and still is today is what will you do with this cornerstone? Everyone has to determine what they're going to do with Jesus. And there's two possibilities given in our passage. You, you will either reject him or you will believe in him. Jesus will either become your cornerstone or a stumbling block, which is really just something that, that gets in your way. So first we're going to talk about those who reject him and, and uh, by not believing. Again, Peter quotes from the Old Testament in verses 7 and 8 where he says this, But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. That's, that's ouch. That's one of those phrases there that we're, we're going to get to that one in a minute, but for now we'll just pretend like it's not there because that's one of those. So the idea given here is that the nation of Israel uh, received this cornerstone. They looked it over and they went, nah, this isn't a good one. And they tossed it aside. He was not the, the cornerstone they were looking for. He was not the Messiah that they wanted. So they rejected him. But then they saw a number of Jews and Gentiles believing in him and following him. And guess what it caused in them? Offense. They became offended by this. So he became a rock of offense to them as well. Now, the idea here is that they're the religious leaders. They're the smart ones. They're the ones that are in tune with God. And if they determine him to be an unworthy cornerstone, well, how dare somebody determine otherwise? They thought that they basically... Um, Everybody else would fall in line with that, and it didn't happen. So, so Jesus has been like the spiritual tripping hazard for the nation of Israel ever since. And, and the funny thing, ironic, not, not funny, haha, but ironic, is they thought they had dealt with him on the cross. So the idea at the cross was that if you won't reject him, we'll reject him for you. We'll make sure that's taken care of. But they only ended up escalating the whole thing even more when he, when he rose from the dead. So in their attempt to try to reject him, by sending him to the cross, they ended up propelling Christianity into existence, which is fantastic, isn't it? Um, he, you know, they, they kind of made him the cornerstone of the Christian faith by, by what they did. And, and I just love this picture of like, you know, this truck backing up in Jerusalem, you know, beep, 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 and dropping this giant stone right in the middle of everything. Uh, God just placed it right there where it can't be ignored. And now they have to go, what are we going to do with this? You're either going to receive him as a cornerstone or he's going to remain this ever annoying obstacle that they have to try to work around bumping into all the time, keep from stumbling over. That's, that's what he's been there. And then there's this little phrase that I mentioned in verse eight that, that you, you know, you just want to breeze by and hope nobody notices, but that doesn't work in this church for a few reasons, right? There are some people here that'd be like, Hey, I noticed you skipped that. Thank you for those people. Uh, it's in God's word. So it matters. And if you're a good pastor, you'll, you'll teach the whole counsel of God. So we're going to talk about it. It says of those who reject him, they disobey the word as they were destined to. Now, 
when we come across a verse like this, we, we can do some different things, right? One, like I said, we can ignore it and just move on. Uh, that's popular. Uh, we, can, we can get offended and, and move on. We can try to explain it away. That one happens a lot. So you'll find this in a lot of commentaries where they'll say, oh, no, they were, they were, what it's saying is that anyone who, who doesn't believe in Jesus, um, they're destined to stumble. They're destined to, you know, that's what they're talking about. They're destined to be offended. But that's not what it says. It says that, that, that the fact that they didn't believe is something they were, they were destined to do. So there's times when you can come across something like this and you just have to say, okay, I don't fully understand this, but it says what it says and it means what it means. And I have to submit to that because it's God's word. And when we come across things like this, it's helpful to me to, to, to think about who God is. What do we know about God? This is one of those phrases that's like, I don't know what to do with this exactly, but I do know some things about God. I know that he loved sinners so much that he sent Jesus to the cross to die for them. And that tells me a lot about who our God is. So, yes, this is a hard one. Um, I kind of think that it has to do with with what we read about, if you were to go and read through like Romans in chapter nine, towards the end, all the way through to chapter 12, it talks about this idea that, that Jerusalem or Israel was going to reject the Messiah, that the God was going to blind their eyes, stop their ears so that the gospel could come to us. So the fact that, that they rejected was something God did so that we could be grafted in and, and be received. Um, that's kind of what's happening. And if, actually, if you look down at verse 10, where it says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people, I think that's what, what's being said here. If this is something you want to talk more about at some point in time, I like talking about these things. It's interesting um, not to battle over, but just to discuss, but probably not something we need to spend more time with on a Sunday morning. So I didn't chicken out, but I also didn't give you much there. All right. If, by the way, you have been included if you have been taken in by God as one of his people, receive that gift with great humility and with great gratitude. Because the way I understand scripture, none of this was owed to us. It was all mercy. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. If you're a recipient of mercy, thank you for that, Lord. Okay. So we see those that blatantly reject Jesus as the cornerstone, which is tragic. And, and you kind of, almost, you almost look at that as like, just this really obvious, like, no, I'm not having anything to do with you. I reject you. But, but I see a lot of people in the world that, that maybe they don't look like they're doing it quite that blatantly. And maybe even who claim Christ, but who are functionally doing the exact same thing. And and I just want to almost say, say this as a warning. If, if you say that Jesus is the foundation of your life and that that's what you've built your life upon, but anybody looking at the building that's being built would go, huh, that doesn't look right. They would wonder if it was true. That's something you need to consider. Sometimes we need to ask ourselves these questions and think about it. Is Jesus the foundation of my life or am I the foundation of my life? Are people looking at what God is building, what God is accomplishing, or are they looking at something that I'm building and accomplishing? Is God making something of me or am I making something of myself? Those are two very different buildings. And I think there are a lot of people who like the idea of having Jesus be a part of what they're building, but not actually the foundation, because the foundation kind of determines the way everything goes. So, so yeah, I want him there, but not really is that. And that's ultimately just another way of rejecting him. So when you really grasp who Jesus is and what he's done for sinners, he's not just 
somebody you want to be part of your building, <laughs> okay, he becomes precious and indispensable. I don't need him as another brick to a pretty, you know, an already decent building that I got going. That's not what we're talking about here. My building needs to be condemned. It needs to be flattened. It, it, it's a terrible structure. It's not like he's just going to spruce it up a bit if I, if I bring him in, just, you know, put him in. That's not what we're talking about there. I need everything resting upon him. He is that solid ground that I'm resting all of my weight upon. That's what Christian belief is. It's not just the idea that, yeah, I agree that he was a person. And yeah, I agree that he did this. No, you're, you're resting all of your weight upon this as your foundation. This section and what's being said reminds me a lot of what Jesus said to Peter. Um, you remember in Matthew 16 when, when Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Um, the idea of what Jesus is saying here, that I'll just, I'm not bagging on the Catholic Church, but they take this to almost like say that he was saying, Peter, I'm going to build my church upon you, which is kind of funny. If you think about it, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not picking on Peter, but if, if Peter was here, I would still do it because it's Peter, right? It's like, Peter, I'm going to build my church upon you. It's like, that's a bad idea for a lot of reasons, but it would be a bad idea for him to do that with any one of us, right? So this is not what he's saying here. And I think Peter makes that really clear in the passage we're in today as well. In essence, what he's saying to Peter, because Peter is Petros, which means like a piece of a rock. So he's saying, Peter, you're a, a little piece of a rock, but on this giant mound of a rock, this cliff. Is, that's what I'm going to build my church upon. Two different things. So in essence, what, what he's saying to Peter is you're a little piece of rock and you wouldn't make a good foundation at all, but I can do something with you. I can work with this. You know, I'm going to add you to something I'm doing. And, and when you think about what he did in, with Peter, it's like, that's pretty cool. I love, like, I wish there were before and after pictures of Peter, you know, seeing him in the, in the courtroom, just denying Jesus. And like, you know, to a teenage girl, it sounds like, which is like, wow. Okay. Those kind of pictures. And then seeing him ultimately hanging upside down on a cross because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner of his Lord. What a difference. And that's the difference the gospel and the Holy spirit makes in us. So Jesus is going to tell Peter about this future building project he has planned. It's a spiritual house called the church where God's presence will dwell and it's constructed out of living stones. It's a weird picture, isn't it? The living stones are those who have believed the gospel and have been born again. So the idea is that we are dead stones until God breathes life into us. You almost get that same picture of Adam when he was made. These living stones include all believers throughout all the world, throughout all time. I told you you were part of something big, right? This is without question the greatest structure ever built, and you're a part of it. Think of all the living stones that have been gathered to make this magnificent structure. And you can't miss the comparison to the temple in this section. Israel had two temples in their history. Solomon's temple was the first. It was incredible, uh, but it was destroyed in, in 586 B.C., by Babylon. The second temple was built 70 years later. It wasn't near as grand at that time, but then it was renovated and expanded by King Herod um, shortly before Jesus's birth. So this would have been the temple that Jesus hung out in and, you know, turned tables over in and all that kind of stuff. That would have been that temple. That temple was destroyed in AD 70. So that one was leveled except for that one wall. Now that the wailing wall that they, they still go to Jesus's temple is different. It was established in 33 AD and it's still going strong. 
2,000 years later, and, and, and he says not even the gates of hell, which really represent its greatest foe, not even the gates of hell can prevail against this temple. It won't, it's not going down, right? I love the way Ephesians 2 puts it. It says, This household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This temple is the dwelling place of God, the same as the old temple was, the Holy of Holies. This is what this temple is. That means you and I get to go into the Holy of Holies. And I don't know how, I mean, it's a terrifying thing to think about. You know, the old stories are they would tie a rope to the guy's foot when the high priest would go in. So in case, he, you know, I don't always picture the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know why I go Indiana Jones on it. But but you got to, you know, that's what, this is terrifying. This is the glory of God. And, And we in this temple get to enjoy that. Not only are we part of this new temple, but look at what verse 9 says about us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter's actually applying the same words to us that God used about his people in the Old Testament. When God had rescued them from the land of Egypt and they came to Mount Sinai, God told Moses to say this to his people. You can read it in Exodus 19. He says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's no mistake in the language being used here. It was once used to describe Israel and now it's being used to describe something new, a new people, a new temple, a new priesthood, a new covenant. So, so you see how Peter is kind of filling in this identity for us. This is, this is who we are. And I love that he starts out by saying that we, the church, are a chosen race. So this is like something new, a chosen race. If you think about it, it's significant because he's speaking, we know he's speaking to Jews because there were Jews in this group, but he's also speaking to non-Jews. And a non-Jew, in case you haven't figured this out, is anybody who's not a Jew. So that includes everybody else. And he's saying that combined, you make one race, a chosen race, his people. And I love that. Even the idea of the cornerstone is the picture of bringing two walls together. That's what's happening here. So in Galatians 3, we read, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. That's what he's describing here. This new temple is made up from people, from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And yet we all find our same identity in Christ. And this makes that, that building even more beautiful. What a beautiful temple God is creating. I and mean, all you have to do is just look around this room and just see how beautiful this temple is. Right? This is a really good-looking project God's got going on. Um, I probably watch too much HGTV, but this building is not just about design. It's about function, too. Right? Peter mentions several things that we get to do, and he hearkens back to the priests of the Old Testament. So in verse 5, if you look back up there, it says, You, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We know that one of the jobs for the Old Testament priest was to offer daily sacrifices. But there's no need for that anymore. Why? 
Because Jesus did that once and for all. That's over with. So what are these sacrifices that he's asking, saying that we, we should offer? He refers to them as spiritual sacrifices. And that immediately makes my mind go to Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your spiritual service. So our priestly offerings include our prayers, our worship, and our service. And they're made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Anything I offer is not going to be that great unless it's through Jesus. And this is something that every believer gets to participate in. You know, then it was only the Levites. They were the only ones that could be priests. But now it's opened up to every one of us. The priestly office isn't limited to certain people in the temple. Every Christian has equal and free access to their creator. We can come boldly. Peter also tells us that we're a holy nation, and this means that we're called to be his own special people, just like Israel was set apart as as distinct and holy. That's what we're called to be as Christians, together as one nation. So the idea of Lone Ranger Christianity, of being separate off by yourself, doing your own thing, that doesn't fit with anything that we've been talking about today at all. You know, we're, we're, we're gathered together as living stones to make this thing. That means we need to be together as one, one family. And lastly, we're we're called to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I picture Jesus standing before Lazarus' tomb where where, where Lazarus lay dead until Jesus called him out. Uh, He called him out of that darkness into the light. And and can you imagine Lazarus? What, What do you think he wanted to do next? I think he probably wanted to go tell everybody he could tell what happened. And that's the idea of what we get to talk about the excellencies of the one who's done this for us. We should be shouting it from the rooftops. All of these things we've talked about, talked about today. I almost went Canadian there. Talk to boot. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. All of these things should accelerate the mission of the church. We, We have this amazing identity, this amazing God that's done these things for us. We should want to go tell people about his excellencies and, and all of the, the things he's done for us. So, so the, this temple that we're talking about should be like this brightly lit city on a hill that, that draws people to it. That's what the church should look like. The way we conduct ourselves, our own lives in, in, in holiness and, and in love towards the people on the outside should, should draw people to us. And, and I'm going to mess with your eschatology here for a second. That's your end times beliefs, maybe. Um, if I'm messing with you too much, sorry, but not sorry. Because when it talks about this temple, um, it, it's kind of neat to think about. When I have, uh, used to study end times, I always knew that there was a temple that had to be built before Jesus could come back. And I thought it had to be like made with rocks and hammers flying and that kind of thing. And, and as I read this, and some commentators that seem to think this way, it makes you kind of wonder if maybe maybe a, a temple doesn't have to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Maybe maybe this is what is being talked about. Maybe this is the temple that's being built. And, and if that's the case, you know, because I always think I, I'm, I'm one of those weird people that thinks, okay, if Jesus is going to come back and a temple has to be built first, I got to see some permits being pulled right from the first, and then I, maybe you'll see like some some contractors being hired. So and it's going to take more than three and a half years to build this thing. So I've got some warning. Well. <laughs> This kind of erases that if this is true. And what if there's five living stones left to place and it's done? That's kind of cool to think about, isn't it? It gives me goosebumps. It's like he could be coming back. We don't know when that last stone of this temple will be placed. And that's exciting to think about. And 
for what it's worth, the sooner we, we get that last living stone in, the sooner we get to go home. So get busy, people. I want to go home. All right. I also love that the things that are said about Jesus in this passage are, are true of us too. Um, it makes our identification with him that much more real. Jesus is a living stone. We're living stones. Jesus was rejected by men, but precious and holy to God. It's true of us too. He's a holy priesthood. So are we. He offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That's what we're called to do as well. So this is who God has identified us with and as. That's where we find our ultimate identity in the world. If somebody were to come to you and ask you, who are you? What would you say? First and foremost, I want to be known as a Christian. I belong to Christ. That's my identity. That's my everything. If your answer is something other than that, I want you to think about the foundation you're standing on and what's really what really matters to you. Because at the end of the day, there's nothing else. There just is nothing else. So to conclude, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Praise God. Father, thank you so much for this this passage. There's so much in it, Lord, and that you feel like you can't do it justice even a little as we go through it. But what we do know is that um, you have loved us and, and you have saved us and you have made us your own people. And, and I pray, Lord, that that would stir our hearts in some way that, that would just change us to be more devoted to you, to, to want to, to, to enjoy these, these temple duties that we have to do right now as far as uh, um, offering these spiritual sacrifices. And, and I pray that it would bind us together as a church as well, Lord, that we would be a tight-knit, close family that is doing all of this ministry together. Lord, we look forward to the time when Jesus comes back and ultimately takes us home into the kingdom that we await. And, and we pray, Lord, that as we're here, as we remain as exiles here, that, that our identity would be firmly fixed in you, and that we would be diligent about proclaiming you to those around us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.